We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host, Nick Bellato. Today we're going to do a little bit of talk on some national media weigh-ins. For the first time, I guess, all offseason. It's been a while, at least. Two national media pieces on Giants quarterback Daniel Jones entering this year. The first one is from Steven Ruiz from The Ringer. And the second one is from Football Outsiders. And that's also from another writer. Oh, Mike Tanier, who I really like his work, too. Two guys who I really respect in the industry, Tanier and Ruiz. Both guys watch a lot of tape and base their decisions on the tape. And so we're going to talk about those two pieces because the first time the national media weighed in on Daniel Jones, really all offseason, it's mostly just Giants people talking about it. And one case, it was good. It was, quote, unquote, a good article. And that's from Stephen Weeze. And the other from Mike Tanier was the opposite. It was move the hell on from this guy. He's not the answer. So we'll talk about it. We'll weigh in a little bit on what our thoughts are. We're also going to talk a little bit about some of the top 30 visits the Giants have either planned or have already made because uh, kudos to Zach Rosenblatt of NJ Advanced Media. He's done a little bit of a tracker with some of the Giants visits. I'm even adding one that I just saw today as we were getting ready to do this podcast, which is cornerback Derek Stingley, a player who me and Nick have talked a little bit about and are intrigued by, to say the least. So we're going to first start by talking a little Daniel Jones and national media weigh-in, and then we'll go ahead and get into uh, those top 30 visits. So first, before we do any of that, Nick, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing excellent, man. Just going over a lot of football recently, watching all the film I can get my hands on before the draft happens, and that's fastly approaching, my friend. Yeah, it really is fastly approaching. And so let's jump right into this article right now, starting with the Stephen Ruiz one. So I want to start by saying I love Stephen Ruiz and he's done some great work. I was a bit disappointed by this piece. I'm going to be honest with, with you, Nick. And that's no knock on Ruiz. He's done so much good work. But I expected a little bit more. I expected a more chunky piece. I expected more game film examples and breakdowns. Instead, it really was just a few clips of 
some advanced level quarterback play. And that's, again, what me and Nick talk about a lot, the flashes. And we talk about the flashes from Daniel Jones. It's that ability to hold the safety and wait for something to get. And we'll get into all what Ruiz broke down. But hold the safety for a quick second with his eyes and then throw the ball into a different window where you're like, oh, wow, did he really do that? It's those flashes. It's, But it's all from that, that two, three, four game stretch, which in my mind was actually the best stretch of Daniel Jones' career leading through that Saints game, including even like week one, week two. I thought he was playing good football. I thought their Giants were mostly held back by Joe Judge's conservatism and Jason Garrett's conservatism. But Jones was moving the ball through the air, and he had that really nice four or five game stretch to start the year. But again, it's the consistency thing with Jones. And I just was disappointed to see not a lot of clips from Louise, um, from Jones's you know second half and kind of outside that little run. But I want to first start with this, Nick. He talks about the 10 first round quarterbacks whose fifth year options were declined. 2011, it was Christian Ponder. 20, uh, Christian Ponder, Blaine Gabbert, Jake Locker. 2012 was Brandon Whedon, EJ Manuel, Teddy Bridgewater. 2014 was uh, Bridgewater Manziel. Sorry, Bridgewater was 2014. Manziel, Paxton Lynch was 2016. Mitch Trubisky, 2017. And Josh Rose in 2018. So those are the 10 first-round quarterbacks who weren't, uh, whose options were declined. So Jones would have to buck a trend right now if the Giants do decide to decline his option, and that decision doesn't have to be made just yet. As far as his future with the Giants goes, like if they decline his option, it's almost like the writing is on the wall. Yeah, the writing is definitely going to be on the wall if they decline the option. And I'll say this about Ruiz's piece. I appreciate it because it deviates from the norm. Now, I might not agree with everything in the piece, but the fact that you have a national media guy kind of approaching it from a different perspective, because I feel like Daniel Jones has been a punching bag for a very long time, according to the national media. And you know what? I always thought it was a reach. I didn't think it was the way to go. I really respect Daniel Jones as a player. I respect his professionalism. I think he's a adequate quarterback, but not one that I feel like is probably the long-term solution here in New York. But I really did appreciate the fact that a national media guy deviated from the norm and, and approached it in a way that, yeah, it might have some holes, but there's also, it's also an interesting read that brings up some points that I feel like need to be acknowledged. Without a doubt. And it's not even that there's holes for me, even though there are some that we disagree with. I just wanted a little bit more of like tape outside of that good stretch. Cause Everyone, I think, who watched the film would agree that Daniel Jones was taking a big step during that stretch. And now some people will argue and say, look, you you should just base your evaluation of Jones on that stretch because after that, the team was so bad around him, all the injuries, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the film, he just didn't look as good on tape. Regard If you like in my mind, this has always been a debate with Giants Twitter and something that me and you have kind of struggled with at times, which is separating the tape in the sense that we believe, and I know you believe this too, Nick, but you can correct me if I'm wrong because I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you can still evaluate a quarterback on film independent of his supporting class. A lot of people on Giants Twitter believe that you cannot evaluate a quarterback independent of his cast, and the cast plays such a big role that there are examples and situations in their mind, like the Daniel Jones one, where there's no way to evaluate him. You just have to throw everything out and keep moving forward with just a clean slate every time until you fix the supporting cast. But... I think our job, or at least what we try to do, is separate the cast from what, from the things that you can do as a quarterback independent of your cast. And so I was just looking for a few more examples from Ruiz outside of that stretch, I guess. But one thing I want to start with, which we agree with and, and just interesting to see, I thought he did a really cool job breaking down just how bad Jason Garrett's play calling and his offense were. He shows it. It's just incredible. It's really, truly incredible. Now, again, maybe there are different solutions or not solutions. Maybe there are different. I just saw the word solution. Maybe there are different excuses 
for why Jason Garrett ran an offense like this. I want to make that clear. If you talk to Jason Garrett right now, we had a chance to interview him, Nick. He would probably tell a way different story than anyone's heard right now about why he didn't call things a certain way. In his mind, yeah, he might say a lot of the things we've heard already. It's partially because the offensive line doesn't allow it. He may also say Daniel Jones can't do these things, right? Like Daniel Jones can't see the field well enough for me to call an offense like this. That could very well be in the, like, we don't know. We don't know what Jason Garrett's thinking in that regard. So, but first and foremost, he just talked about how, how much, you know, hitches and outbreaking routes and, and really showed that really, and it's bad for podcasts, but all Giants targets from 2021, um, it's just, it's just a heat map and with essentially nothing down the field. Yeah. And that's the issue really. I mean, they're just, wasn't a lot of vertical concepts, which was totally different than what we expected because we thought he was going to bring in, you know, a Coriel based offense where we were going to push the ball vertically and Daniel Jones, he realistically has the ability to push the ball vertically. He's actually a pretty damn good deep ball passer, which is something that I feel like a lot of people do acknowledge about his game. But I think there are valid arguments that the offensive line held Jason Garrett back. We've acknowledged that on the podcast, but when you see like the 17 stick concept of the game, you start to kind of get tired of it. And I feel like it was very unimaginative. And I think Ruiz pointed that out really well. Yeah. And what he did a great job of showing was defenses began to squeeze the Giants passing game down. And that's something we have predicted would happen for months and years. If you go back to the season before and Jason Garrett's offense, if you just show that kind of offense and those kind of route combinations over and over, teams are eventually going to just start sitting on those routes knowing they can't, they don't have to risk it. And what he showed was Jones's a dot by week in 2021. And for those who don't know, a dot is average depth of target. And it peaked in week five. And before that, in weeks four, three, two, and one, it was all higher. It was 8.6, 11, 7.3, 9.5. And then it just had a steep decline after week five to 6.7 in week six, 5.2 in week seven. 4.3, 4.8, 5.1, 6.3, 5.2 to end Jones' season before the injury. And partially, at least according to Ruiz, what he blames this on is that defenses began to clamp down and squeeze the Giants' passing game. And in his mind, that's not necessarily on Jones as much as it is on the quarter uh, on the coordinator because what he said is there were no more layups provided by Jason Garrett. And there were none throughout. And if Jones needed time in the pocket or space, this is according to Ruiz, to make a throw, he had to create it for himself. Good NFL quarterbacks expect those things. Good NFL quarterbacks are expected those things every so often. For Jones, it was required on most plays. And so I think there is a very legitimate argument to be made that defenses were able to predict this Jason Garrett offense. And it played a bigger role even than we were saying, even than I'm saying now, in why Jones was able was not able to find success after that week five game. But that's not a surprise to us, Dan. Like, that's something that we said time and time again on the Big Blue Banter podcast. And again, it kind of goes back to what we said before. I'm I'm appreciative that Steve and Ruiz acknowledged it from a national standpoint. But if you tuned into Big Blue Banter, you heard us saying these things. And we, we are not Jones homers by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it's safe to say that we recognize how crappy of a situation that kid was put in. And to talk a little bit about what you mentioned Ruiz and I agree. I feel like there were more examples he probably could have extracted from the later games of those deeper throws where Daniel Jones showed, I would say, pretty solid competency in his ability to manipulate the safety and then attack the deep middle of the field because it wasn't something we saw all that often. It's not something we've seen all that often in the deep middle of the field throughout Jones's career. But I remember a play against the Chiefs where he looked the safety off and it kind of opened up this deep spot route where John Ross just sat down in between like three zone defenders and Jones threaded the needle to him on a 
think it was a, I think it was in the third quarter on like a first down. And then there was the one against Kenny Galladay where the ball was behind Kenny Galladay and Galladay had to like stretch behind him to catch it. It was like, you know, in the fourth quarter of this game. And it was an impressive throw. I know it was behind Galladay, but it was behind Galladay because the linebacker was kind of sitting in that zone right underneath. And if Jones kind of led Galladay, it could have ended up being an interception. So there were some later examples of Daniel Jones showing above average processing and aggressiveness attacking the middle of the field. And that those weren't in the article, but again, like I felt like he did a good job breaking down the Broncos game, the saints game, and some of those earlier matchups. Yeah. And I think something the Reese goes over that I agree with is Jones did a lot in 2021 to trim some of the fat off of his game. And it was difficult to see because the stats weren't there and the big time throws weren't there. But one thing I talked about, and I put it on Twitter, couple a couple weeks ago is Jones had a career low sack rate and that was despite uh finished playing behind an offensive line that was 30th according to Ruiz and PFS pass blocking grade I thought I saw a little higher but I guess that's what he has the numbers he has that's something I talked about on Twitter the other day his sack rate was he had the 12th best sack rate in 2021 he had the 29th best as a rookie in 2019 and so as Ruiz said it looked like Jones was panicking last behind bad blocking and, and in the past he would panic and we make a turnover worthy throw but as he said in this he was only he was had the ninth best turnover worthy throw rate in the nfl now part of that to me is based on the offense and how conservative it was but back in the day in 2019 and 2020 he had less of a plan to kind of combat this this terrible offensive line and the, and the pass rush coming down on him so i thought he improved there but mostly from the sack rate standpoint i said it the other day there's been a lot of studies and data to show that look this consensus belief that sack rate for a quarter uh, that if a quarterback gets sacked, it's all on his offensive line is wrong. Some quarterbacks take a lot more sacks than other quarterbacks, a considerable margin. And that is a quarterback stat as well, taking sacks. And I think Jones has done a really good job to kind of improve that and get better at understanding the pass rush. I still think there's a long way to go there. And I still think he can do better with the pocket manipulation. A lot of his solutions now is either the, it's less the bail, right? But he still has the bail, right? In his game. And, and still it's mostly just kind of step through it. I kind of want to see him do more of sliding and resetting within the pocket. But as fact, of the matter is he has a much better plan. He's not just panicking and taking sacks anymore. No, he's not. And there were plenty of times throughout the L22 this year when we said, oh, wow, Jones, he really, you know, he hit the shoulder fake, stepped up in the pocket, evaded a rusher, dipped the back shoulder to kind of protect the ball. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Daniel Jones has become synonymous with fumbling the football kind of at the top of those pass rushing arcs when those defensive ends can really just swat at the football. But I felt like he did a solid job protecting it this year and then stepping up in the pocket and delivering a throw, whether that be outside the numbers or over the middle of the field. Those are little things about his game that I learned to appreciate in 2021. Now, was it overly consistent? And that's something that I feel like can be argued. I, I still think, and I hate this, but I think it's true. I think Daniel Jones, how I viewed him going into this season, it, it hasn't deviated all that much. It was, this is a guy who has shown it, who has flashed, but he hasn't yet put it all together for a consistent string of games. And that is an issue. And uh, we went into last season, Dan, with the mindset about Daniel Jones. Hey, it's a make or break it year. We said it several times. Like, it's a make or break it year. And now we are a year later and we're like, eh, it's a make or break year, kind of, with the new regime. It's kind of a bridge quarterback for whoever's going to be here next. So it's an unfortunate turn of events for the kid. Didn't get a fair shake. But here we are in 2021 where the option about his fifth year has got to be picked up in less than a month. And I doubt it will be. And it's interesting because you're right. We are coming into this offseason with a similar mind, pro, uh, you know, thought process and mindset as we had, which is, you know, he still has to prove himself. It's still a make or break it year. But I will say this. I actually thought he played 
his best consistent stretch of football in 2021. Some people look at 2019, but those games were all over the place. He beat up on a on a Washington defense that by all means quit. You look at the quotes and the idea that that coaching staff was then fired a few weeks later. That was a quit game. He beat up. Uh, what was the other? He beat up on uh, one other beat up game, but he was. Those games were kind of patchy. There was an in between. There were some bad games and there were some good games. But last year was the first time he had a really consistent stretch of football. That weeks one through five, or even if you want to take out one, though, I did think he played well against a, a tough Broncos defense and was held back by Garrett in that game. But even if you just look look at weeks two through five, he played really well for the longest stretch of his career. That to me was the most consistent stretch of football Jones has had his entire career in 2021, which is viewed as one of his worst seasons. But I thought it was his most consistent, the only one I saw a real consistent stretch football. But ultimately, I need like 8 to 12 or more, man. I need like 10 to 16 games of consistent play for me to believe in you. Honestly, more. I'm sorry. I keep changing this, Nick. I need two seasons. I don't. I need consistent play at quarterback. I just can't believe in you. And so that's what I'm looking for this year. That's the only thing that can prove me Jones is the solution. If he's consistent the entire year, if he falls back into these spells of really bad play, it's hard for me to get excited about a fourth-year player. But some other things Ruiz broke down were just he credits some of his lack of big-time throws. And Jones was had a big-time throw rate of just 1.8% almost last in the league, only 6.6% of Jones's pass attempts alone even traveled more than 20 yards down the field. That ranked 37th out of 37 quarterbacks who qualified. But then he went over Mike Glenn, who started those four games for the Giants, and once again had the 30th ranked 7.8% big throw rate. So really, he just felt like it was the Giants offense that doesn't generate the downfield opportunities. And the route running combination, the, sorry, the route combinations. And he, and he had a nice chart to show that as well. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? I think it makes sense. I mean, we've said that it's all married together, right? A blocking sucks. So the quarterback isn't optimized and then the scheme is going to be hurt by the blocking. And when you kind of throw a old school offensive coordinator who might not be as modern, doesn't maximize motion pre-snap to really help his quarterback out you're probably not going to have great results. I think it's definitely a combination of all of those things. Now, I, this is how I feel like people should look at it from a from a modern landscape, I guess, a modern viewpoint. If Justin yeah. Herbert was put on the New York Giants right now, how big of a difference would you see even with all of the crap that's going on around them? Are you asking me or are you just using a hypothetical there? No, I'm asking you, and I'm just kind of putting it out there. I'm yeah. saying elite quarterbacks would show you elite play, at least a little bit more consistently. Again, I think Daniel Jones, he can start in this league. But in order to win the league, you need a quarterback who can do a little bit more than just be a you know ho-hum starter, which is what Daniel Jones is. So I, I think if you were to put Justin Herbert on this squad right now, you're going to see a quarterback who is overcoming a lot of those issues. 100%. And he's already proven it, right? Yes. And I now mean, look I feel at that like... Chargers rookie season. The offensive line completely collapsed. There were injuries across the board for the Chargers. And he was making touchdown throws to guys like Jalen Guyton. Pep Hamilton was his quarterback coach. And I feel like that really helped him, even though he had Anthony Lynn as his, his head coach, who wasn't the most forward-thinking offensive type of head coach. But still, you can see there's a difference between those types of levels of talent. And I think it's unfair to compare Daniel Jones to that player. But when you're talking about allocating a big portion of your cap to this player, you have to view it in that way because you're only competing against 31 other teams. You need to defeat those 31 other teams. You need to have a quarterback who can rise to those occasions. And Daniel Jones, despite having crap around him, has not proven that.
Yeah, 100%. And so that still remains to be seen. I thought those are the key points in Marie's article. We'll get to the 10-year one in a second. But I do want to bring up one quote that I actually missed during the, I guess, process in these last few months from Kafka. We all saw the quote Kafka made about wanting to have a downfield offense, big picture, always looking to generate explosive plays. Yada, yada. We've heard that all in the past. But one thing he said about Jones that I just missed or something, which I'm curious to get your take on because I don't necessarily agree with it. But Kafka said he's athletic, he can make every throw, and he can move outside the pocket. I agree with those three things that Kafka said. Let me start by saying that. But then he said, I think he can throw from different launch points, and I think that's some of his best stuff. I don't know if I've seen that on film. Yeah, I don't really know if I've seen that either, to be honest. I think, honestly, if you go back to his rookie year in 2019, there was a throw he had downfield to Darius Slayton that was wildly impressive. And like whenever I see it come across the timeline, I see some people share it. I'm like, wow, that really is one heck of a throw. And he did throw that off of a, I don't want to say it was an unstable platform, but you could see how he put so much into the throw, so much torque, so much of his body. But in terms of him rolling out to his right and throwing off one foot while he's falling back, like you see these elite quarterbacks doing, I, I, and I could be wrong here. I, I, none, no prominent plays come to my mind. None at all. I mean, like the throw against Tampa from his rookie season was a nice one where he rolls to his left, makes a throw to Slayton. But I've seen so many more examples of him having really bad accuracy from different launch points. And I've seen so many examples of him making his best throws when he's able to square up his shoulders and step into throws from within the pocket. So I don't know if I mean, look, there's coach speak all over the place, but I just I just don't know where that's coming from. That's that that's some of his best stuff. I don't even know any examples, any games. I think it's some of his worst stuff. To me, it's one of the biggest concerns with Jones. Like that's up there for my top three concerns with Jones. Number one being the mental processing. Number two being the the weird, weirdly in my mind, just drop off from a ball placement standpoint on the throws five to fifteen yards that we saw last season. There are some examples of you know there are some excuse. I don't want to say excuses, but maybe reasons why as far as the offense system goes, the offense, whatever it may be. But there's been an odd drop-off on his ball placement to me, which is not good because that was one of his only good things. And then just, I think, among there for concerns to me is the ability to, is the ability to throw off-platform, the ability to throw when he doesn't have his shoulders squared. And I just don't know where that's coming from. Well, think about his best throws this season, right? The 52-yard pass from John Ross. That was set up off the play action. The Saquon Barkley throw. You know, all, all these throws were in the pocket. They were just him, like you said, getting into the pocket, having a clean pocket, stepping up into the pocket, and then delivering what I would say is a beautiful football. But rarely, like you said, is him moving out to his left or moving out to his right and throwing while he's on the run. I don't think that is a something that I would say is a plus trait of his. I, I haven't seen it happen all that often at a, at a grand scale of, of hitting for success. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com yeah, unfortunately. So maybe that's something that we'll we'll see moving forward. But let's dive into the other side of this, the flip side of this. And that's Football Outsiders Mike Tanier's article on Daniel Jones, which, you know, took a totally different spin on it, right? It's funny how these two national media outlets and these writers have just a different opinion of what's going on with the Giants. And I love to get these outside opinions because sometimes I feel like we're in a bubble and we can only kind of see what we see. And we and in some ways it's like it it's uh we can kind of have confirmation bias in some ways, but he talked about some of the really concerning signs with Daniel Jones so far that lead him to believe that there's just no way this guy is going to be the long-term answer. He talked about how Jones ranked 26th out of all quarterbacks in DVOA last year. That was his third straight season in the bottom quartile among starters. Some people be like, Oh, the offensive line, Oh, Jason Garrett, but no DVOA is, job is to kind of separate that stuff. That's the point of DVOA third worst in failed completions. And that's another thing that, again, is supposed to take away the offensive line, the coordinator, the play calling, blah, 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 and the receivers and, you know, their ability to catch or drop passes. Third worst in failed completions, 26 in DVI, and 34th among qualified starters out of 37 in Alex. And Alex is like their kind of uh, football outsiders, like total quarterback kind of evaluation system, I guess you would say, independent of what's around him. So, I thought that was interesting to go over. He kind of talks about a little bit more how in summary, he thinks Jones isn't the starting quarterback in 22 because he's a top prospect. He thinks he's a giant starter because one, he's cheap in 2022 Two, any replacement would cost money and resources. The team doesn't have right now. And three, the guy who signs the check, John Mara loves him. And I, I don't know that I can disagree with any of that. Yeah. I can't disagree with any of that either, but I also think there is a world where all those things are true and then Ruiz isn't necessarily wrong. In order for that world to materialize, how unlikely it is, is for Daniel Jones to absolutely murder and kill this year. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's possible. I still see it. I still think there's a possibility Jones is a much better quarterback and wipes out that Alex rating, wipes out that expected completion rating with just a better supporting cast around them. I've seen the flashes of high-level play. Like you said, that ability to manipulate safeties, that ability. There's still those those possibilities there's still a possibility with Jones for me but you know it's just interesting that people kind of throw out how bad he's actually been independent of a supporting guest a lot of fans are willing to just totally rule that argument out and just be like nope 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 it was this it was that it was that it was that we failed him the Giants failed him it wasn't him but there's a lot of stats advanced numbers ball placement and game film that tells an opposite story I think you have to it's really worth considering 
Absolutely. And I actually got this asked me on Twitter a while back, and I apologize. It's taken me a little bit to, to bring it up on the podcast. Somebody asked, and I just want to put it out there, and I don't think I subscribe to it, but how much should we be rooting for Daniel Jones? Because if he performs well, the Giants could feel inclined and John Mayer could feel inclined to extend him, which ultimately may not be the best thing for the franchise. And that is a loaded question. That is a heavy question, but I kind of wanted to just throw it out there and see what happens. I don't want to do that one right now, Nick, to be completely honest with you, because I know it would be interpreted in poor ways. And I don't not necessarily blaming anybody for misinterpreting that because it's a tough question. It's just like the idea of like, did you want the Giants to win the Chase Young Bowl a couple of years ago when they were facing the Washington football team? I understand both sides of it. And I can never root against Daniel Jones or the Giants. So it wouldn't be the case, but it's a fair uh, it's a fair question to ask. And I, I I'm. I'm happy and excited there are fans who can acknowledge that it's okay to ask that question, right? It's okay to say, is it really that good of a thing if Daniel Jones grinds the Giants to a wild card spot, they lose, and John Mara says he took the step I needed to extend him? Because we're seeing a lot of trouble, even with the best, you know, Ryan Tannehill has been discussed as the best case scenario for Daniel Jones for a while. And right now, Ryan Tannehill is a problem for the Titans in most people's minds. You look at the really good Titans film guys and, and, and an analyst that I've read, and they're questioning whether they want to pay a rising 30, I think it's up to 39 million because they push some of it back. It's going to be like 40 plus million cap hit for a Ryan Tannehill with Derrick Henry extended, and they have to cut guys now, and they can't sign guys, and the offensive line's going to get worse, and they didn't really go that far with Ryan Tannehill. They got the one seed and disappointed in the playoffs, and everyone who looks at that Titans team next year is like, not a chance. I'll take the Chargers over them. I'll take the Chiefs over them. Hell, some people are taking the Broncos. Uh, I'll take the Broncos over there. Damn right, I'm taking the Broncos over them. I'll take the Ravens over them. They're, you know, I'll take the Bengals over them. It's further to f- the Bills. It's like at this point, what was the ceiling with the Tannehill? And so I think it's a fair question to ask. I'm not going to get into it right now unless you want to j- dive into this. We'll move on from it. It's your call, Nick. No, I think it is a fair question to ask. And I'm ultimately going to root for the New York Giants. But again, I think you did a good job saying, I appreciate the fact that we have listeners who can ask that and understand that there is a a long-term decision that is going to come from Daniel Jones playing really well that will impact the Giants' trajectory going forward. I, I think Daniel Jones is a, you know, like I said, I think he's an adequate quarterback, but mistakes are still a part of his game. Carelessness with the football, it's still a big part of his game. Think about the interception to Willie Gay against the Chiefs, the yeah. two interceptions to Taylor Rapp against the Rams. Those were just underneath defenders who were right there. Now, the one against Taylor Rapp, if I'm not mistaken, he was kind of flowing on a, a high-low, and then Rapp just did a really good job kind of sinking underneath. But still, it, it, there are times where he doesn't account for those underneath defenders and tries to get a little bit too cute, and he doesn't have that kind of velocity of a Pat Mahomes or Justin Herbert to really thread the needle, and it gets exploited sometimes. Yeah, a lot of times there are times where he's thrown off his balance. He's thrown from the spot that he wants to throw. He's, he's moved from the spot he wants to throw the football in, and he's laid on his throw and doesn't have the arm velo- the arm talent and velocity to generate the throw to where he wants to be. Remember the Rams game from a couple years ago? The Giants always made that upset win. Then he's thrown. He's forced off his spot. He throws late, and he throws the interception. This is from two years ago, not the disaster game he had last year. And, you know, there's also examples still to me that, 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 that concern me of him not reading hot all the time. Like, year three, those hot – and he does a good job with this. So this is not a bad thing, totally. But in year three, to me, there should be – especially from a quarterback like Jones who was billed as a cerebral guy. Like, part of, the, part of the reason we were sold on Jones as a top-six pick is, all right, maybe he doesn't have the greatest arm talent in the world, but at least he's super smart. 
I don't see it. I don't see the football IQ, the mental processing. I know he's from Duke, but the mental processing isn't there. And I still see examples of him not reading hot on some throws. And that's like, what the hell? It's year three. I can't be worrying about you not reading hot pre-snap. Like that's the, that should be the least of the concerns for a guy like that. And so, yeah, ultimately the Daniel Jones book remains open. We'll see what happens. But I thought it was interesting to hear two different media outlets, both writers I respect who, who use a lot of film and analytics to back up their arguments kind of have such a different take on, on what to do with him moving forward. And they both did a good job too. So I highly encourage the listeners yeah. to go and read that Steven Ruiz from the ringer and then Mike Tanier from football outsiders. And Ruiz did a great job. I didn't mean to say at the beginning of the podcast. Otherwise, I just wanted to see some more tape, I guess, um, from some of the later games that was, that was exciting. So I don't want to say, so I rephrase it. It's, he didn't do a bad job. It was, I guess it's just, there's nothing out there that he could have done differently about those final six games for Daniel Jones. They just, there wasn't much good tape to go on. And that's fair. Cause there, there just simply wasn't, but Let's talk a little bit about, let's pivot a little here and let's wrap up the podcast, Nick, by talking a little bit about some pre-draft visits because New York, uh, NJ Media, Zach Rosenblatt did a good job of racking up and compiling all the pre-draft visits the Giants have made so far. So I'm going to go through each visit and and you can you can weigh in if you want and I'll, and I'll kind of uh, riff off of that if there's something to be said. So today it was reported that Derek Stingley, the cornerback from LSU, will be visiting the Giants for one of their top 30 private visits. Thoughts? I love it, to be honest. First off, you want to ensure that the medicals check out. Reportedly, they do, and he tested the pro day, and you look effortless doing all of those things, which is excellent. They might be bringing him into the building to have their doctors really check out that foot, that Liz Frank injury to see. But at the same time, I, I still think this guy is an option. No one's really talking about it. But if they don't have concerns about the injuries, big if, this is somebody who has some probably the best tape. Granted, it was in 2019, as we said. But if it was in 2020, it'd be a different story. But that's a big ifs, you know. I uh, I appreciate it, especially if they trade back as well, because he could st- realistically fall somewhere to the teens. And I think Derek Stingley Jr. is the cornerback that Wink Martindale is looking for. Same with Sauce Gardner. I think they're both the cornerbacks that he's looking for. So if one goes and another one's still around, I think that's a real decision that the Giants can make. Yeah, and I'm just kind of like I said with Jermaine Johnson. If the Giants did decide to go Stingley at seven, I wouldn't totally hate it because I could understand it from 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 an overall standpoint. They also brought in Sauce Gardner, Ahmad Gardner, for a top thirty visits. They also not only did they bring him in for visit, they went to his pro day. Shane was at his pro day. They took him out to dinner at his pro day. They've shown a lot of interest in Gardner. And it makes a lot of sense. Just like we were saying with Stingley, it all applies to Sauce Gardner. Sauce Gardner, man, he's somebody who takes football very seriously. And I'm sure Stingley does too. I'm not saying that to, to slight Stingley, but this is somebody who doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. He's all ball. He's all sauce. And honestly, I, I think if if I had an ideal scenario, Dan, and let's actually play this game real quick. We're getting closer to the draft. What is your ideal realistic scenario for five and seven, no trades? Ideal realistic scenario for five and seven, no trades. I think it's, I'm, I'm leaning now toward Neil and sauce as my ideal scenario. That's mine, to be honest. I think that is. Now, I can definitely be talking to other people, and I, I don't, I'm not stamping it in. I, like I always say, there's plenty of paths to success, and the Giants are in a good position with two top 10 picks. That is a very, very rare thing. And ironically, the Jets have two top 10 picks as well. So I think they're in a great position, but if you're saying – with the impact players here, get that right tackle to really help solidify the offensive line. Great player in Evan Neal or Icky Aquanu or Charles Cross or whoever. And then Sauce Gardner to be the staple of a passing defense that has been dominant in Baltimore under Wink Martindale. And you also have a Dory Jackson and then Aaron Robinson. And then you can really start building the rest of that defense up. Yeah, you got to remember a big portion reason why that Baltimore defense had this 
dominant stretches until last year. And last year is also proof as to what I'm about to say, because the injuries happened, is that they had that stable of corners, man. They had two lockdown corners and then a third really good one. The Giants right now have one, I would say, really good one in Adoree Jackson and have the chance to get a lockdown corner, even better in my mind, at least ceiling-wise, in Sauce Gardner. So they would have that to start with the potential of having that third guy in Aaron Robinson. Now, I don't want to call him that yet, but it's potential that he can be that guy. I saw enough flashes that I believe it's possible, very possible, especially looking at what Baltimore did with their D and who their third corner was and, and the idea that we can kind of keep Robinson in the slot where I think he's at his best as a corner. So it's exciting to think about from that standpoint. Dan, did you see the tweet that I, I put out this morning about Sauce Gardner against Calvin Austin, the wide receiver yeah. from Memphis? How like I think that really speaks to Sauce. This A, this is in 2020, so it's not even his breakout year, but they were putting him in the slot against Calvin Austin, who's <laughs> off the line of scrimmage. And Calvin Austin, for those who don't know, is like five foot seven, teetering on five eight, very explosive, good release package. He's somebody who could be selected on day two because of his rare elite burst and athletic ability that he possesses. And he's a nuanced wide receiver coming out of Memphis. We've seen these Memphis skill players come into the NFL and just dominate in recent years. And you're putting a six foot three high cut hipped individual on him in press. And he's doing a pretty damn good job. Now Austin got him a couple of times, but that really speaks to the fluidity of Sauce Gardner and just the overall nature of him. Yeah, Sauce Gardner is a better prospect than Calvin Austin, but those two skill sets and those two body types are, are completely different. 100%. And it's really interesting to watch him be able to do that. It shows that you can kind of have him travel with a lot of different receivers because you know he has the length at six foot three and the size and, and the speed and the initial kind of 10 yard split burst to keep up a lot of these guys. But when you see it against a guy that's such a different match, not a mismatch, but so, so mis. Shapenly, I don't know how to explain this because he's not a mismatch for Sauce Garner, but he's just a different type of matchup, I should say, for Garner. And you see the success that he can have against even players like that. It's exciting. Like, I really like Garner in this class. A few other guys they've brought in, Icky Iguanu, Evan Neal, Aiden Hutchinson, Kayvon Thibodeau. We've talked a lot about those players. Trayvon Walker, who I'm sure they wanted to see. And then a couple interesting ones for me. Malik Willis and Sam Howell. Now, as far as Howell goes, Willis is less interesting to me. I just don't see it happening, and I don't think they're going to be a position. But Howell's a player who, in the past at times, has been described as a number one overall pick type. I've seen some sick flashes from him on tape, like really good flashes. There's also really bad stuff, too, from Howell on tape, and he's really small. He's been compared in some ways to Baker Mayfield, and I don't hate that comparison by any means, though I think he's a much better runner than ba Baker for what that's worth. But the Giants had a big contingent at his pro day. It included Shea Tierney, the quarterback coach, Director of Player Personnel, Tim McDonnell, who's John Mara's nephew. And now after that, there's a report that uh, Coach Brian Dable really likes him. And now as far as Shane, uh, how it goes, they're also bringing him in for a top 30 visit. What do you make of all this Sam Howell stuff? Bringing him in for the visit, having all those important guys go to his pro day, yada, yada. I mean, I would be a little shocked if they went with Sam Howell at pick 36, which is probably where you would need to draft him if you're going to get him. He's one of those prospects that people are talking about in the first and second round. I think something that probably appeals to Dable, everything that I've seen from Sam Howell, everything that I've heard about Sam Howell, is he throws a very, very good deep ball, similar to Daniel Jones. Now, Sam Howell's issue was his 2021 wasn't nearly as good of it as his 2020. If he didn't go back to school, he could have been top 10 pick if, if 
it wasn't last year's draft. A lot of people were talking about Sam Howell heading into 2021 as this is probably quarterback one. And then he fell on his face early in the season and, you know, losing Javante Williams and Michael Carter and De'Ami Brown and Daz Newsome, that definitely took an effect on him. But in terms of your question, I, I would be pretty uh, shocked if that happened. And I, I could see the Malik Willis and Zach Rosenblatt brings this up being more of a smoke screen, but with how there might be some interest there as a developmental quarterback. But I wouldn't want to make that pick in the second round, would you? I would definitely not want Howell at 36 overall. But I actually think there's a better chance than you do of him just sliding and sliding and sliding. I mean, like oh, a few no. years ago, Davis Mills was talked about as a potential first-round pick. He slid. That was last year. And then there was the kid from um, Jacob Eason was at one point projected as a po- possible first-round pick. He slid. Davis Webb, he slid. There's all these like guys who you think are going to go higher at the quarterback position. And in my mind, sometimes just don't. And if he just keeps falling and falling, that's when it gets interesting. I still don't think I'd use one of the round three picks on him personally. I just don't really like him that much. But if he's there in round four, or if they do end up taking him in round three, I can understand it. He does have some talent for sure. Absolutely. And I see another player on this list, Dan, your your best buddy. And uh, my one of my favorite tight ends, Trey McBride. How you feel about that, Bob? Yeah, no, he's a good cross. Look, I, I said, even in the McBride podcast, he's probably the best tight end I've seen on tape so far. I just don't think he's leaps and bounds ahead of any of their tight ends. And I just don't think he's by any means some kind of interesting, great tight end prospect that I want. If he was an unreal blocker, I'd be so much more interested in him than I am right now because the receiving upside to me is just not ultimately that high with a player like Trey McBride. And so if it does mean that second round target, obviously it's not something I would want. But there's a few other names I want to get to here that we haven't talked much about that are interesting to me. The first is, let's go through the trio of backs that we discussed. It's Cook. They brought in James Cook. We did a profile and we love. Brian Robinson from Bama, bruising back with a good pass pro upside. Brees Hall. Showing that much interest in running backs, we talked about that. It's interesting. But they've only brought in for a private visit one interior offensive lineman, and that's Kenyon Green, the guard at A&M. What are your thoughts on Green as a potential target at 36 overall? Robin Lovett for 36 overall would really bolster the offensive line. I have issues with him in pass protection. I actually like Zion Johnson more, but after watching Kenyon Green's tape, you think about his versatility. This is somebody who played 81 snaps at left tackle, over 1,000 snaps at left guard, about 850 snaps at right guard, a snap at center, and 142 snaps at right tackle. This is someone who can execute a lot of different assignments for your offense, and that's very valuable in the NFL. Ultimately, I think he's more than likely a guard at the next level, and that's how a lot of people are viewing him. Didn't have a great combine, so maybe he can slide, but this is somebody who was a five-star recruit out of Texas, somebody who was highly sought after, long arms, huge hands, over 10 inch hands like 10 and three eighths inch hands and when you watch him and his play strength i mean we could do a draft profile on him so maybe i won't dive too much into him i really like his ability though to move bodies off of the line of scrimmage and i think his pass protection issues won't be as exploitable at guard like they were kind of when he was on an island when he played a lot of snaps on the right side at right tackle and at left tackle so you put him at guard it's not as much of a concern to me i feel like his his footwork wasn't great i feel like he didn't always like Zion Johnson, you watch him, dude. You see how he plants his feet in the ground yeah. and kind of explodes off through the ground and into his target. I didn't feel like Kenyon Green did that. But despite the fact that he wasn't doing that all too consistently, he was still able to generate a ton of power at the point of attack. I like him. I think his hands could use a little bit more refinement. Sometimes they're high and wide, a little bit erratic. But if you're talking about getting Kenyon Green at 36, that is definitely in consideration. I just did a mock draft with Patricia Trainer over on Lockdown Giants if anyone wants to check it out. And he fell to like pick 45 for me because I traded back and ended up having like 45 and I was like, yeah, that's an easy lock it in, plug it in. And now you have a really quality interior offensive lineman for the next four years. 
Yeah, cheap. Under contract cheap. He's someone I'm interested in at 36 for sure. I haven't watched much, but I've heard good things. Interesting that he's the, he's the one IOL they've had for a top 30 visit so far, at least reportedly. Another tight end they brought in was Cade Cotton out of Washington. I haven't seen much of Cotton at all, but every time I talk about tight ends, somebody, at least one person in my replies is like, have you watched Cade Cotton? You've got to watch Cade Cotton. I love Cade Cotton. So have you seen any Cade Cotton? And do you like him? Six foot five, 247, mostly a pass block catcher, but I've actually heard he's good at blocking. So it's it's Kate Otten, but yeah, Kate Otten. What did I say? <laughs> you said cotton, oh, Kate <laughs> no, cotton. like cotton candy. No, but uh, I actually haven't, and he's somebody that I've been pursuing his film, and I haven't gotten a lot of all twenty-two film. Maybe I should send some emails. Hopefully, he'll get some responses from that. But if not, I may have to resort to watching just you know broadcast film and what I find on YouTube, which is depressing. But if that's <laughs> the case, uh, I will do that because. Now that I know that he came in for a 30 visit, I definitely want to look at him. And he's one of those tight ends that I've had circled for like the last month. Like I got to get my eyes on this guy. I got to get my eyes on this guy. Like I watched a lot of those late round tight ends, you know, the Jelani Woods and the Austin Allens and tight ends like that. And everything I hear, I feel like I'm going to like Otten more because Otten seems to have that dual ability of being a receiver, not a sudden or explosive guy, but being a solid receiver and also a good quality blocker, somebody who can play Y for you and who is a little bit more nuanced than some of those back-end guys who are more than likely going to be drafted, you know, past the fourth round or fifth round. So I, I definitely want to watch his film. Cool. We'll definitely get to that then because I'm intrigued by him as well. They've apparently brought in another edge who we haven't talked much about, but I like, and I've only seen a little bit of, but it's a trait-based thing for me. I just really like his quick first step combo with his edge bend, and that's edge rusher Nick Benito out of Oklahoma. I am worried to some extent that he'll be like a better version, a lot better version. They're not comparable actually at all, so it's the stupid concept to make, but I'll get to my point of O'Shane Ziminens in the only in the sense that, because they're, again, not comparable prospects, but in the sense that he's just evolves into kind of just a pure pass down, pass rusher type of guy. You got to take off the field on early downs. That concerns me for sure with Benito, but he has some traits, man. I mean, you watch him bend, bend that edge and you're like, holy shit, can he bend an edge? All the film that I've seen on Benito, and I haven't done Oklahoma's defense yet, but I still, I've, I've watched them when I'm watching other teams and whatnot. You see the bend and you see how he's fired out of a cannon. You can see how he really stresses and challenges the angles of offensive linemen. And all of that is something that people are going to love. But I'm excited to get the Oklahoma's film because Perry and Winfrey is somebody I really want to study. I think he's going to appeal to the Giants because he has like 35 plus inch arms and he could do a lot of different things. He was like a nose tackle for Oklahoma, but he's probably going to be moved around a lot at the NFL level. Also, senior bowl MVP. We know John Mayer and the Giants love that. <laughs> well, maybe that was the old staff who loved that couple yeah. other guys that are interesting to me that will wrap up with Lewis sign out of Georgia. He's the safety who came on late with Georgia, but flashed on film and then ran a four, three, seven 40. What are your thoughts on signs? Yeah, I love him to be honest. I think if you don't go the direction oh, of do a love him, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. you loved him. Yeah, no, I, I like all of those safeties on the back end. There so are so I, many great safeties yes. in, that, in that second round range. And I think sign might be the most complete of the bunch. So I really like wow. Daxton Hill as well. But the reason why I wrote a piece for Big Blue View, it was making the case for Lewis Sign, Jaquan Brisker, or Daxton Hill. That was one of the hardest ones. Where I the had. hell was my boy, my boy Jalen Petrie at? Jalen Petrie, uh, I don't know. My the uh, editor didn't pitch him up into the uh, equation, no, I and I like Jalen Petrie a lot. But I, I think I, I have all three of those guys maybe above Petrie. It, it's it's hard to be honest. I feel like there's a big cluster behind. It's Kyle Hamilton, and then if if you wanted Kyle Hamilton but didn't get Kyle Hamilton, I think you can go with Lewis Sign and, and you'll be happy. To be honest, I ended up in that making the case going with Daxton Hill though, and it's mainly because of his cornerback ability. That's somebody who I feel like 
He played a lot of overhang. He's played deep half. He's done those things. But I feel like he has the traits to be a cornerback. And I think that's Ooh. really translatable at the next level because he's played so much slot. And I think he's one of the better man coverage type of overhang slot defenders. That's Daxton Hill, the cornerback out of Michigan. So I went with him in that piece. But if the Giants end up with Lewis Sign or Seen, I'm not actually 100% sure how to pronounce that then I would be very, very happy because you want interchangeable safeties, right? Spagnola talks about this a lot. A lot of defensive coordinators talk about this a lot. You want safeties who are interchangeable. Xavier McKinney can execute any role you ask him to do. I mean, freaking Patrick Graham was asking him to start about 15 yards off with uh, with uh, somebody impress on Tyreek Hill, and they blitz the pressing cornerback, and then freaking Xavier McKinney had to drop down in an angle to cut off the angle of Tyreek Hill. Like he was asking him to do pretty complex things and trusting him to do it, to execute the right angles. And we criticized Xavier McKinney a little bit at the beginning of the year, but towards the end of the year, you saw how mentally he was starting to pick up everything very, very quickly and became a really, really big impact player. Well, you want another safety who can execute a lot of those roles so you can use them interchangeably. Kyle Hamilton is the ideal fit for that, but it's going to cost probably a high draft capital. If you want to get that guy at 36, I think sign is one of the top guys you're going to be looking at that's really interesting i haven't watched much of sign so i'm gonna to have to take a look if you think there's traits like that that's to me if you have any of those potential man coverage type traits that shoots that will shoot him ahead of a player like petrie from you i don't necessarily think is going to be as adept at that at the next level but i just love i don't how really take- i don't really know how much of the man coverage traits he has i think he can do it but that's not necessarily his game i just think he can execute any type of coverage assignment that you give him and he's going to come down into the alley and be one of the better run support defenders in terms of the safeties that are in this class i feel like there were some missed tackles that he had but i think all that can be cleaned up a lot of the safeties end up having these missed tackles but he can he can do a lot for you and he is a supreme level type of athlete i honestly feel like between sign daxton hill jalen petrie Jaquan Brisker and um, and obviously Kyle Hamilton, all those guys can do a good job of filling the alley. And they're all really strong players in my mind in that regard. Who would you yeah. say worries you a bit from that? Who worries me from filling the alley? I think they're all good okay. in that. Now, so you I would think, agree with that. Okay. Yeah, I think Hill is like, there wasn't a lot of 2021 film in Mike McDonald's defense of Hill dropping down from safety depth and, and filling. Yeah, he can do it. He did it in 2020 right. when uh, Don Brown was the, defensive coordinator but he was primarily with mcdonald just an overhang slot defender and he was great in run and he was also just great blowing up screens man there were so many times where these big 10 teams like ruckers sadly was like oh i'm gonna run this screen and then freaking you just see he'll fly in and just annihilate some poor receiver You're like oh my god he's he's very very interesting i think he's gonna be a first round pick though interesting i think there's a chance one of these guys drops to round three where the giants pick i don't think it's a high chance but sometimes with these clusters you see some of these guys drop a couple of years ago is the kid who went to the Jets, who I liked a lot from uh, Cal, the safety who dropped. He's been injured. Yeah, Ashton Davis. Yeah, Ashton Davis. Just sometimes you see these safeties drop. It's a position that can drop. So I'd be curious if they can get some value there, maybe on round in round three. Last guy I want to go over as far as reported visits go, and then we'll wrap up here is a guy I don't know almost anything about. And it's Cordell Flott from LSU. He's viewed as more of a late round developmental quarterback, but has the length and the speed. Have you, you have any thoughts on Flott? I, I do not. No, that's a that's a yeah. unique last name, but I haven't watched yeah. a lot. Uh, we also had the uh, the local guys. Right. I think there are a couple. Now, two of those guys that, or well, one of there's three that he really mentions, and one I haven't seen yet. But Bo Melton, the wide receiver from Rutgers, and Jesse Lucchetta, the edge linebacker, defensive lineman, whatever the hell you want to classify him from Penn State. Those are both interesting late round flyer types who I feel like can step in and be 
solid contributors. Melton a little bit more on special teams, whereas Luketa, he can just do a bunch of different things for you. He's not dynamic at any one thing, but if you watched him in the Nittany Lions defense, you could see he's like, oh, he's a one technique now. Oh, he's a three. Oh, he's a five. Oh, he's playing stand-up linebacker. Oh, he's in a two-point stance as an edge. Oh, he's in a four-point stance as an edge. He just did a lot of different things and wore a lot of hats for that defense. Yeah, which is awesome too. A few other things just to give notes on. Joe Shane's been at a lot of pro days, and that's not common for a GM. That's what um, Rosenblatt says, and he's right. Those include Alabama, Oregon, Georgia, Cincinnati. There's been huge Giants contingents as well at pro days of Neil, Kwanu, Cross. Um, he mentions, we, we talked about in the past, Giants offensive line coach Bobby Johnson ran some drills with Charles Cross at right tackle. Um, Johnson himself has been at a lot of pro days himself. He was at Central Michigan to see Bernard Raymond, a player I like a lot. Memphis to see Dylan Parham, who we haven't talked about much, but I kind of like a lot too as an interior offensive line target. And then he watched Tennessee Chattanooga, Tennessee Chattanooga guard center Cole Strange work out in yes. March. I think Parham and Strange are both excellent interior offensive linemen that you could possibly get on day three of the draft who can step in. They can play center. They can play guard. I really like the idea of adding both of those players. And I kind of wanted to throw this really, as you would say, harebrained idea out at you. All right. We are fixated that the Giants are going to take right tackle. I am a firm believer that they will. What if they don't? And they go after a Raymond a little bit later or Ryman a little bit later or go after some other tackle and they're confident in some of those later round tackles and then they just double up on defense. How wild would that be? Yeah, it would be interesting. It would probably show a little bit more faith in Parrot, I think, than people would imagine. Like maybe they saw some tape on Parrot where they're like, we could combine him and Ray, uh, Ryman and maybe find something out of those two. Though I think honestly Ryman could end up going around one. I wouldn't be shocked so do I. at all. So do I. I really like him. So we'll see what happens there. But it's interesting. I think. I do ultimately think they're going to go tackle, though, with five or seven. I just feel like Same. they're locked in there. They know how bad it is on the offensive line. And even Mara, who plays a little bit of a role, I think, still, even today, has a feel there. I like I like Luke Fortner a lot as a late-round center guy. That's the guy I'm kind of fixated on. Yeah, I, I, I brought up Luke Fortner every chance I can get on so many different podcasts. And I've told the story probably on this podcast. I literally went into his film expecting to see Darian Kennard dominate. And I was like, who the hell is the center? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. why is anybody talking about the center? Oh, he's probably like a really good sophomore or something. He's not draft eligible. It's like, oh, he's a senior. I'm like, hey guys, uh, we should probably start talking about this dude. I, I really like his game as well. What is he? Six foot seven? Fortner? I don't believe he's that big. I think he's six foot six, six foot seven. I mean, we're gonna have to look that up. I don't believe he's that big. Let me That's take a look big. real quick. I thought I thought because I, I thought he was super like long. Four? Let's see. Nice six, six four. Six. Oh no, he had uh, that was it was listed incorrectly by Kentucky at six six. Okay, he's just he's just over six four. Correct on the okay. Yeah, three oh seven. So yeah, yeah. good, arm, now, good six, arm length. Good arm length. I I just love his length, and I think it shows up in his game. He's someone who intrigues me a lot based on that. So we'll keep him in mind. There's also been a heavy presence for a lot of tight end pro days. The Giants are finally all in on this tight end stuff, which is great because we've needed an influx of talent there for a while. Jelani Woods, they've been at out of Virginia, the size B kind of guy. Charlie Kohler, who I like a lot at Iowa State. Kate Odden, uh, Nevada tight end Cole Turner met with the Giants virtually. And then Maryland tight end Ch Ch uh, Chigo Okonwano. You know what? It wasn't as bad as I expected. <laughs> well, I cut off his first name on purpose. So I could try to get it close to yeah. right. And then obviously Jerome Henderson has been at Stingley's Pro Day. And that was before the Giants had him in for a top 30 visit. They also met with... Jalen Petrie the night before his pro day. So I think that's interesting too. That's the Baylor safety who I like a lot. And then I finally, what'd you say? 
said, I'd love to hear all that, man. Yeah, me too. And then finally, Shea, Shea Tierney, the quarterback coach, Kenny Pickett Pro Day. So who knows what that means? But any other final thoughts before we move forward? Yeah, the Shea Tierney, I'm not going to read too much. And I highly doubt, highly, highly doubt the Giants <laughs> would go quarterback in the first round right now. But yeah. those tight ends, man, that's a, that's a good cluster of guys to really wa- uh, watch. Okonkwo, though, the kid from Maryland, he's – I wish he was more physical as a blocker, he, but he has some real explosiveness. It was on display at the Combine, but he's a little bit of a – a little bit of a project so somebody who maybe a day three target but i'm hoping that they go with somebody who has a little bit more blocking chops that's fair all right that's all we have for today on the big blue banter podcast we will talk to you soon have a great rest of your week and go giants For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.